0: Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Kelly Haride. Kelly is a climate scientist who works in the insurance industry. Does that sound boring? It's not. I promise you, this conversation will demonstrate to you that it's not. It turns out there are a lot of scientists in the insurance industry, including a lot of earth scientists of different types, but if you didn't know that, you're not alone. I think most earth scientists in academia and government don't quite realize either just how much science goes on in the insurance industry. Because historically, it's been a separate world. Scientists get their degrees in academia, of course, but then when they get jobs in the insurance industry, and quite a few of my students, for example, have, we don't hear from them after that. Well, I sometimes hear from the ones who are my students, but as a field, by and large, they disappear from our view. They don't publish anymore, for the most part. They come to science conferences sometimes, and they listen, but they don't say much. Because while in academia, the name of the game is to publicize your work to your peers as much as you can, in the private sector, the incentives are opposite. Intellectual property has economic value to your employer, so you don't want to give it away. And this leads to a situation where there's a big disconnect between the scientists doing the basic research on how weather and climate work, and those doing work that quantifies the risk of extreme weather events for the insurance industry. And that's a problem, especially as global warming is changing extreme weather risk in ways that we don't completely understand, but that the insurance industry has to deal with. So Kelly Haride is trying to fix that. As the insurance industry tries to catch up to the reality of climate change... And at the same time, as academic climate science looks for ways to make itself more directly relevant to human society, Kelly is one of the most outspoken and articulate scientists trying to bridge the divide between them. Kelly understands climate science, she understands business, and she understands the rapid changes happening in both. She knows how to translate between the two worlds as well as anyone else I know, and she knows how important that translation is. So, as she explains, she spends a lot of her time doing that translation, including here. We talk about how she became a scientist, starting from her childhood interest in insects and her undergraduate training in geology through to her PhD in paleoclimate, of all things. That's the study of climates in the distant past. Then she got her first job in the insurance industry, and that's about when she and I first met, around 10 years ago. She's risen fast since then. She talks about how her job is different from what academic scientists do, but also how it's related. And we talk for a while about how the industry has been changing very rapidly, as it has started to try to take climate change seriously for just the first time in the last few years. And in the end of the conversation, we get into the different routes through which that scientists can inform climate adaptation, insurance being just one of them. On top of her insights into science and business, Kelly's an engaging conversationalist. She's frank and she tells it like it is, and she's funny. So I think you'll enjoy this one. Here's my conversation with Kelly Haride. Deep breath after extended technical difficulties. Thank you so much, Kelly, for doing this um, with me. I want to start with, oh, you're welcome. I want to start with where we do, which is, where are you from?
1: Where am I from?
0: Where were you born if you want?
1: And you so ask that. academics that question and they can give you an answer that's not 20 minutes long. <laughs> Sometimes
0: it is 20 minutes long, that's okay.
1: <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest, mostly in St. Louis, then Minnesota, Texas, Colorado, Texas, New York, Connecticut, and now I'm in Philly.
0: Wait, 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 hold on, that was too fast. So let's start with <laughs> let's start with let's start with birthplace.
1: I was born in Iowa. See, I even skipped that one.
0: And so, but then mostly St. Louis and from all those other places, but some of those were adulthood. Am I correct? Yes. So did you move around in childhood or was it all in St. Louis?
1: Mostly Iowa, Wisconsin, St. Louis. Then it was in St. Louis for a while.
0: What do your folks do? There was some moving around for somebody's... My
1: dad's in sales, paper sales, and uh, my mom mostly stayed at home.
0: Yeah. So, but I mean, did he get transferred or why were you moving around?
1: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I don't know. I was young enough that I just was like, oh, I guess we're moving. <laughs> right. But I moved to St. Louis during the flood of 93. And the whole area that I moved into was mostly underwater at the time. So wow, got me kind of into disasters, although I didn't know that's where I would end up.
0: And what age are we talking about? Third grade. So, I mean, so you understood what was happening with the flood and it, and it did jar something in your consciousness.
1: Yeah. I thought it was a bummer. I'm like, I'm moving to Missouri, the state of misery.
0: (laughs) Is that a thing they say there?
1: That's a thing that they say when you have to move as a third grader and you don't want to leave your friends back in Milwaukee, but you get over it.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, did the flood affect you personally?
1: Well, it was just very much a part of your consciousness you know, the areas around me, like we would go into parts of town where you could still see the flood marks under the second story eaves, you know, years later. Since then, that area has now been built into one of the largest strip malls in the country, which is probably not ideal. <laughs> right. So
0: that that flood was bad in the city itself. I can't remember. I hadn't remembered that. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, I was way out in the burbs, but yeah, actually... uh. I went to a talk from Jerry Galloway, who's a former, I believe, a former general from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I don't know if those are the proper titles. And uh, I started describing the area where I grew up. And he immediately is like, oh, I know exactly where you're from. Our goal is to have that never happen again, because it was this massive amount of flat land near a metro area that suddenly had nothing on it and now is massively developed. So. That certainly has uh, has colored my approach to disasters ever since.
0: So did your interest in science predate that, or the flood is what started it?
1: I thought I was going to be a biologist yeah. for, ever since I was really little. I found a, a journal that I wrote in first grade saying that I was going to be an entomologist. No kidding. Not spelled correctly. Then I decided I didn't like getting stung by bees, so then I wanted to go into botany
0: Wait, hold on. I have to tell you, do you know that Marshall Shepard has the exact same story? What? Yes. He oh, my wa- God. He That's wanted- amazing. You can listen to the episode where he tells it. He, he yeah. wanted to be an entomologist, but in his case, he found out that he was allergic and might die if a bee stung him.
1: I'm not allergic. I'm just <laughs> terrified of needles, which is <laughs> scratches the same. Edge. Wait,
0: so I want to hear about the botanist part, but first, like, where did the entomologist thing come from? You just like bugs or was I there something? I like bugs. There wasn't like science in your family or anything.
1: No. 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 (laughs) We sort of wonder where I came from. My dad was a football player. My mom was a cheerleader. Somehow I happened. So, well, that's all right. Never quite knew what happened there.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. So quit entomology because of the bees and then, okay, then let's, then botany. That
1: was Then botany and ornithology, thought those were really cool. Went to college, convinced I was going to be a biologist. Mm. Started as a biology major, Mm. finished as a biology major. Mm. But I accidentally took one geology class that I didn't need, as it turns out. Mm. Thinking I had to set, like, check some box on a common core. And about the second week, they dumped us in a quarry. And said, go tell us about the rocks. And it was downhill ever since. <laughs> Does anybody find geology on purpose? Nobody finds geology on purpose.
0: Oh, I'm sure some people must.
1: I don't know. I have yet to meet one.
0: <laughs> I mean, a lot of people who are into outdoorsy things get interested in it, you know.
1: I think, you know, a lot of people don't, don't get exposure to it in high school. You know, you take biology, chemistry, physics. And then, then what?
0: Okay, so actually, I have a little rant about this. So actually, <laughs> in New York, actually, would they teach earth science? Really? Yes, in the curriculum, but they teach it early, like before biology, chemistry, physics, which I kind of think is the worst way to do it because then
1: you need biology, chemistry, physics to make anything out of it. If earth
0: you science. want to understand it, I mean, otherwise, it just seems like like they think it's like the easiest science or something, but it's. It ends up being just a bunch of information and yeah, if you want to do it in a substantive way, you, yeah, I think they should do it last and I don't think they do it well. But anyway, so what about the rocks appeal to you more than biology did?
1: I don't know. I just like hitting shit with hammers and uh, big arm-waving problems.
0: All right. That's good.
1: Biology didn't feel arm-wavy enough, even though I was of the ecology bent.
0: Arm-wavy.
1: Yeah. I like the big deep time connecting weird stuff together.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: That's
0: I wonder, you know, I mean, the other thing is like, I guess you're a little bit younger than me, but when I took biology in high school, I, I kind of hated it because I was a physics type and biology didn't have enough like logic to it, you know, and rules. It was just kind of, but when my kids took it, you know, decades and decades later, it was all genetics. Oh yeah. And that, if I'd had that, I think it would have been a different story. Like, I wish I learned biology. I wish they taught it to me the way my kids had. Of course, the science didn't quite exist then the way it does now. But anyway, that was just something I've observed by the.
1: Yeah. I mean, I loved biology. I still like biology because I actually, I mean, my PhD was in dead corals. I mean, I was trying to continue incorporating biology into my geology. I think they all really hang together. Yeah. Now I just deal with madness and mayhem all the time. So I don't get as much
0: about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But I mean, okay. but but I, you know, but I, yeah, so I, I was just gonna say, like, I think I would like biology too, if I learned it now, like I learned it from my kids a little bit and it seems great, but it, you know, at that time, yeah, it didn't Seemed like more of a I, bummer. I had, well, they made, like, the uh, thing was they made, and when they made me that, I didn't like it from the beginning, but then when they made me dissect the fetal pig, that was it for me. I was like, oh, <laughs> that
1: man. was it. Deal breaker. You, <laughs> you can't done. make
0: me do that. I'm out of here. I mean, I just, it was, <laughs> I just thought it was gross.
1: See, I, I like those parts. I mean, I, as a, as a I, kid, as a fourth grader, they had us like well, dissecting sheep eyeballs and I thought that was cool.
0: Well, obviously this is why you ended up a bio major and I didn't, but yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So, so you finish, you take the one geology class. And then what happens?
1: And then I'm like, well, shit, now I'm double majoring. So then I just kept taking more geology classes and did both of them. I see. And where are we in the country at this point? Minnesota. I was at Carleton college. Oh yeah. Which it turns out a lot of geologists. So even though I was not going there for geology, it was actually accidentally a great place to go for geology, which is funny because it's in the part of the country with hands down has to be among the most boring geology on the planet. I mean, it's all flat Ordovician shale. Mm -hmm. Like, you're looking at a bunch of crinoids. You know what? I know where every goddamn crinoid outcrop is within about a 30-mile radius of campus because you go to the same ones over and over again. It's hard to find an outcrop in Minnesota. (laughs) But turns out a lot of geologists... And nearly all of them are accidental. Most of them get poached from other majors. Most of the other people that I was in there with, there were there were like three who maybe like their mom and dad were a geologist and so they went in on purpose and everybody else transferred from another department. So that seems to be kind of the MO there. I know there was a department called geology. Yeah, so men, pet, tectonics, right sedimentology. It's all, it had a bunch of like, what now kind of feels like old school geology.
0: Right. And a lot of field work sounds like
1: a lot of field work. If it wasn't winter, you were in the field.
0: Right. Of course it is winter most of the time, I guess.
1: Well, but... there's that. <laughs> we did occasionally have to shovel off an outcrop cuz it's so
0: like. Yeah. I feel like that's healthy. Right. Did you go straight to grad school from there? I don't remember your CV.
1: I did go straight to grad school from there, which is a terrible idea.
0: Like For some people,
1: it's a terrible idea. I was so done by the time I was done with undergrad that I probably burned my whole first year of grad school just trying to, like, put my life back together afterwards. So maybe not ideal. My girlfriends who followed, I mean, at one point there were like five or six Carlton people in my department. And most of them took a year to go work or do something else and then came to grad school. Yeah. And they were all much more on top of their game than I was when I started.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's generally good advice. Yeah, I took four years and definitely, well, I would have never done it. I would have never gone to grad school if I, you know, without doing that first. I wasn't ready at all. Yeah, I was
1: convinced that I would never go to grad school if I left and like made a normal person income and then had to like come back to being a student. So I'm just like, I'm just going to rip the bandaid off and do it all at once.
0: Well, but what made, okay, but what made you think that that would be a bad thing. I mean, why did you want to do it in the first place if you thought that?
1: (laughs) So one of my absolute favorite professors came up to me my senior year because like I said, no science family. The only people that I knew of who went to grad school were doctors and lawyers. Yeah. And my folks had very much the same opinion. Yeah. And he was like, Kelly, what are you doing next year? And I'm like, well, Bearcat, I i don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. He's like, you're going to grad school. And he was the kind of person that you just, when they say a statement like that, you just don't argue with it. So I started really? grad school. <laughs> you know, we talk about like, how to get people into the pipeline and the leaky pipeline of physical sciences and all the rest of that. And, right. I, you know, I, I'm not a first generation college person, but my folks didn't know anything about how this works. I didn't know anyone who had this kind of science, literally no one who had this kind of science background.
0: Well, your professors, of course.
1: My professors, well, which is how I ended up going to grad school because it literally would not have even occurred to me that you should go to more school after you finish your undergrad. Wouldn't have even crossed my mind by my senior year of college.
0: Well, it never occurred to me that, one way we could get more people into the pipeline is just by commanding them to do it. I didn't, that was correct.
1: <laughs> right. well, you have to be very <laughs> persuasive.
0: <laughs> but I mean, you must have understood that this implied some career path and had some thought process of whether that was desirable. I mean,
1: but I certainly had to, uh, I mean, if he had, back. you know, to, to put
0: it, to put it, you know, to be snarky about it. I mean, if he had told you to jump off the empire state building, right. You,
1: <laughs> I probably would have. He's very convincing.
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, so what were you th- like, you just thought, oh, he says this at I mean, you, you know.
1: It just didn't occur to me that that was a thing that you could do, that you could continue doing more science and, like, make a career out of it. You know, I, I'd kind of gone in with the mindset, you know, when I started undergrad that, okay, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to get biology major. I'm going to go work in a lab and, like, run experiments in a lab. I, My, like, vision for what a biologist did was essentially, like, a lab tech, yeah. which is great. But it just didn't like the thought of being an academic of any kind. Actually, didn't really even cross my mind.
0: But I guess what I'm asking is, like, once yeah. your favorite professor commanded you to do it, did you imagine that the end product would be that you would be an academic, or were you know?
1: That was kind of the direction I was thinking. Yeah, I see. because I I knew that I liked teaching.
0: How'd you know? Were you because, done it or?
1: Because being in an undergrad only college meant that I had been TAing since my sophomore year. Mm-hmm. In. Geology and biology. Mm. I mean, I probably taught more in undergrad than some of my cohort did in all of grad school. Yeah, yeah. So I knew that I liked that. And I'm like, okay, well, to do that, apparently I need to go to grad school. So I'm doing that now.
0: Okay. All right. Here we are. And you went to Texas, I recall.
1: Went to Texas.
0: UT, Uh, Austin, right? mm -hmm.
1: I knew that I liked... Soft rocks. I was into sedimentology. I was interested in big arm wavy, deep time kinds of problems. So I ended up in paleoclimate.
0: But I mean, this is one of the interesting things about the field that I think is sometimes hard for people to understand is that paleoclimate is actually, you know, it's part of climate science, but it's culturally very different from the part that i come from where no i come from is,
1: overlap at all well there's a
0: little <laughs> but where i come from is a branch of physics and paleoclimate i mean of course there's physics in paleoclimate too but it's to me it
1: much looks more good. into the arm wavy bullshit which is why i liked it i was it's just going
0: to say culturally it's more like geology i mean it's you <laughs> it's know very, the, so. yeah in the sense that it's you know it's very it sits deep in
1: geology departments it tends to pull people who have i mean most of the paleoclimate folks i know lean towards like sedimentology type training yeah well,
0: you're reading the geologic record, you know, as opposed to, yeah.
1: So I moved into less deep time. I took sort of an attitude adjustment to not be thinking a hundred, you know, hundreds of millions of years in the past because I moved into sort of common era last 2000 years. Oh, okay. Right. So that felt a little odd, but it turns out I'm like, well, I don't love chemistry, but I like the interesting data that you can get out of chemistry. So ended up in a paleoclimate lab looking at, geochemical evidence for changes in el nino and la nina
0: right and who's your advisor terry quinn Okay, i don't know this person but
1: he's, but that's because
0: uh, i come from a different branch of the field as well as you come from a different world yeah he's,
1: <laughs> yeah he's actually after i left he's been at nsf for a number of years as one of the program directors
0: i see so coral so tell us a little bit how that works
1: well i'm a broken biologist. (laughs) So I ended up saying, okay, well, I can work with sand and mud or I can work with something alive. So that would be nice. So I did a lot of isotope geochemistry because that will tell you something about the water conditions that those corals lived in. And the most interesting thing that corals like to record is big patterns of interannual variability. So, you know, it's kind of like tree rings where there are only a very few types of archives that can capture sort of annual changes in climate, as opposed to, you know, sort of sediment records, which capture these very long-term, but much lower resolution information. There's relatively little that can capture ENSO. I've almost trained myself out of using the term ENSO since I've been in the industry so long. But, you know, it's like, okay, biggest driver of year-to-year variability in the climate I'm going to look at time periods where it's warmer and where it's colder and say see if we can say anything about how that impacts what happens with El Nino and La
0: Nina. Right. So I don't I don't want to dwell on it. Great we don't much. want to talk about science. No, yeah. I do. I do. I, I want to do it a little more. So I want to just translate a little bit because this part is always interesting. So you take the piece of coral, you like slice it and it has layers like trees. Just or like something? a tree. Yeah. Yeah. And you're looking and so at the...
1: each one of those layers corresponds to a year of its growth. Right. And it made out of you know it's carbonate so aragonite. so you can drill out tiny little amounts of powder and get really really good at eyeballing 40 micrograms of white powders seriously my backup career like drug dealing <laughs> i would be so good at it anyway then you dissolve it in phosphoric acid produces co2 and you can measure the isotopic composition of that
0: Yes. So so just to get a little more pedantic so the isotope, so the isotopes are like you know the molecule has different different number of neutrons or whatever what's the which isotopes were you doing?
1: So oxygen isotopes will tell you about oxygen. the water composition that it was in it tells you a, it's a combined signal of your sea surface temperature and your sea surface salinity so with corals you try to select areas where the signal in salinity and temperature are pointing in the same direction when you mm-hmm. have an El Nino or a La Nina event. That means that that signal is additive so that you can say, yes, we're getting warmer and wetter. So this is a, a signal of an El Nino or a La Nina, depending on where you are in the Pacific.
0: And just because I'm curious, it's 017 or 018 or?
1: 018.
0: 018. Right. So El Nino and La Nina, I guess we don't have to, we've talked about it a lot. We did a whole, almost a whole season about Mark Cain. So, um, you know, Pacific,
1: yeah, part, one, part two, I in, saw that man.
0: interannual climate variability in the Pacific. So, right. So you could say something about how this is changing over time. So how far back does one piece of coral go?
1: So individual corals can live for decades up to, you know, hundred, 150, sometimes big mini atolls can get, you know, 200 years. Mm-hmm. So where people have really extended coral records back is kind of like what people do with tree rings is you look for fossil corals that you can find some, you, you have some way to date them depending on their age. You know, I use a lot of like uranium thorium dating. Mm. So you, you can precisely assign the time for some piece of that coral and then count backwards and forwards
2: mm. using
1: rings. Ideally, you like to ground truth it with a piece of coral that is live so that you can say, you know, conclusively what conditions look like now and then compare that to long term history. So there are people who've gone and, and produced records, you know, going back a thousand years in the Central Pacific and as well as looking at like really deep time, much deeper time too. So glacial, interglacial types.
0: of stuff. Do, do you have to always have to date things, you know, isotopically or can you just like sometimes string together enough overlapping?
1: Sometimes you can string together overlapping cores and yeah. some people have produced really long records that way.
0: Yeah.
1: I will say that it's a real bear. <laughs> yeah. Cuz you have to have those big overlapping sections to make sure you're lined up.
0: Did you do your own field work? Did you go in the field to
1: Sadly, I did not do my own field. I did a lot of field work for other people. But my coral cores were collected before I went out or before I joined the department. Hmm. So I used material that had been pr- collected previously, and on the other hand, went and collected sediment cores in the Gulf of Mexico, which I never worked on, but which my lab mate then worked on for his PhD.
2: Right.
1: So we kind of had like a rotating process going there. But interestingly, much of the field work that I did in grad school was for coursework and for teaching. So like
2: yeah. I taught
1: field camp, I taught a field course for undergrads, you know, we had field heavy Individual classes did a lot less of it for my actual degree, though, which mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of bummer.
0: Yeah, well, and where were, where did your corals come from?
1: So most of them came from Papua New Guinea, some of them came from Vanuatu. My advisor always liked to say that you go to where the signal to noise ratio is the largest. You don't pick the spot that's convenient to get to. You go to the spot where the science says you should have the loudest sound.
0: But are there, Interestingly, is there... that
1: means deep tropical Pacific for the most part.
0: But I would have thought for ENSO, I, de- I mean, I know there's not a lot of islands further east, but I would have thought that would have been...
1: There are a lot of coral records from islands further east. So like the Line Islands, uh, yeah. Kim Cobb at Georgia Tech has right. coraled the hell out of those areas.
0: Yeah, right. I would think the ENSO signal in the ocean would be stronger.
1: Yeah. So I was looking sort of at like the Western extension... Yeah. of the warm pool and also by looking at Vanuatu, I was planning to do sort of a, you know, an SPCZ and get a little bit more on spatial variability. Cause one of the, the last sections that I looked at was as a paleoclimate person, and we're very subject to this. And we see this in, you know, we run into this problem in paleo too. Now is that you can produce this one beautiful, incredibly long record at a single point. But, like, how do you string all those together to create a coherent spatial picture yeah. so that it can talk to a climate model? Yeah. And it turns out that's a real pain to do. So,
2: yeah.
1: by sampling kind of a network across a lot of the Pacific, you can pick out, you know, I mean, areas in the Central Pacific have a very loud signal for ENSO. Annoyingly, corals have a tendency to die in the Galapagos because it's so cold. So, because otherwise, that would be a great spot. But I do have, I do know folks including one who's now in the industry who worked on Galapagos corals to try and get the eastern pacific and then i mostly worked in the western pacific.
0: Yeah, it's funny like so in in my branch of the field, you know, a piece of research and a talk is like i have some data or i have a model, i have some equations, i have something, i crunch a bunch of numbers and then, you know, i have to tell a story about that. In paleo, it seems to me that there's two skills that people need to succeed. Like one is they have some kind of data that they know how to work with. I mean, a huge amount of work goes into whatever the record is, whether it's coral or it's deep sea cores or it's ice, you know, whatever tree rings, whatever the thing is, people have to have a huge set of skills to do that and produce the records. And usually most people are good at one of those things and not others. But then the other skill is they have to look at lots of different noisy time series, all with big but different errors from different points and tell a good story about it. And sometimes the physics exactly. type... And the physics types look at it and say, well, this doesn't, you know, why should we believe any of this? But it is what it is, you know, it's just a different.
1: I told you I like big arm wavy bullshit, right?
0: It's a very important branch of the science. It has,
1: brings a perspective. It's why the communities don't talk all that much, frankly. It's a different skill set. And I will tell you, the paleoclimate folks get a little salty about the modelers because they're like, all you went and did is tweak some parameter on your model and run it again and you have enough data to get another paper. I have to go spend two years running goddamn mass spec Right. so that i can write one more paper just the pace is a little different
0: right yeah i mean that's a little unfair too it's a pay, you know <laughs> tweaking the parameter running the model one more time does not yield a paper um that's publishable but yeah that's that everybody you know we're all um, prejudiced in our own i i, I didn't mean uh, you know i think yeah it's just different, it's just different. <laughs> i mean i think the different standards of evidence and argument you know in different branches of science is a really interesting thing that philosophers of science talk about it.
1: Paleoclimate like, has definitely run into its realms of wiggle matching yeah. in the past. I mean, we used to pick totally the wrong time frame for Milankovitch cycles, right? <laughs> because we wiggle match to the wrong frequency, essentially, right? That's an inherent problem in paleoclimate. Yeah. But on the other hand, turns out super translatable skill to the business environment, because <laughs> as I told them in my interviews, I'm like, my special skill is looking at crappy data and interpreting something useful out of it. And uh, yeah, that's not what I do every day. So.
0: <laughs> All right. So let's get to that. So as you're going through this, was your thinking evolving about your future already or did that come later? Oh, God, no. Oh.
1: I was still planning academia until six months before the end of my PhD. I mentioned that I do everything completely accidentally, right? I accidentally stumbled into geology, decided I liked it, wanted to keep doing it. I completely randomly got recruited at AGU because I, I was starting to think about postdocs. Mm. I knew I didn't really want to do R1 because I like teaching mm. and having spent some time now in an R1 university, mm. saw that teaching is maybe not the first thing on most people's list. <laughs> right. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about postdoc, you know, maybe I want to end up in a liberal arts school. Mm. I like teaching. I like talking. I like bullshitting. That's my thing. So I put my resume out there. I was already starting to, to think through some connections, you know, through my advisor on who I might postdoc with. And just out of the blue, I had what turns out to be the head of CAT. at at a, a big reinsurer reach out to me and say, hey, I see on your resume that you're looking for postdocs. Do you want to ignore that completely and come try out reinsurance? And I had to go Google reinsurance because I'd never heard of it before. Um, but you know, it, it immediately struck me that this was an area where I could be useful. Mm. This was a sector that was going to get hit badly by climate change. They didn't totally know it yet, but this was where I could take what I was doing and make it apply because I had kind of gotten to the end of my PhD and I liked what I was doing. I found that I liked the data analysis part better than I liked running a lab. So I already knew that. Mm. And I was just like, I felt like there was this incredible pressure towards specialization. Yeah. Everyone wanted you to get better and better and better at a smaller and smaller and smaller problem. You mm. know, if you were feeling wild and crazy in the paleoclimate world, maybe you were a coral researcher who occasionally added a speleothem, right? Like, mm. that was like going outside your lane. Mm. I just, I like dabbling, I'm interested in. Everything. I like knowing a little bit about a lot of things and not spending mm. years and years and years beating one problem to death. Mm. So maybe academia never really was for me. But I saw this opportunity. I'm like, okay, I've never heard of this before, but it sounds interesting. It sounds like some place that could really use what I bring to the table. So sure, I'll apply. And then I applied. And then I realized they wanted to hire me right away and I was still six months from finishing my PhD. So that didn't work out. But then a few months later, they reached out to me again saying that they had another opening. Mm. But by that point, I was closer to being done. I was already starting to look out for other jobs. So I applied with with that original company and I applied with a number of others and got a couple of interviews and got a couple of offers. So that was great. Still worked out awkwardly timing wise. I, I actually had to I wasn't done with my PhD. I had to fly back a month after I started my job to defend. But I'm like, okay, this is the thing I can do. I'm going to do this now.
0: But, but so, so, wait, so you got your PhD when?
1: 2012.
0: 2012, right.
1: So I started about, what was that? Two months or so before Sandy hit. So that was my All good right. welcome to the industry.
2: All right.
1: <laughs> Little did I know that we would not have a particularly dramatic disaster for another like, I don't know, pushing a decade after that. But
0: and should we say the names of the places you've worked or I mean or starting with the first one or do we is that
1: Sure. Yeah. I uh I started out at what now is Chubb Tempestry. So it is the reinsurance division of Chubb which is the largest insurance company. But you know, it
0: wasn't that career. then, right? That's another thing that doesn't happen in academia is that your employer gets- Mergers, all, all the time. <laughs> not happening in
1: academia. That is
0: true.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, so uh, at the time it was called ACE and now right. it is Chubb.
0: Right. So I knew you already when you were in that job. So, you, okay, that was the first one, right?
1: That was my first job.
0: So a reinsurance company hires a young geology PhD. For some reason. And, and there's- <laughs> Well, that's what I want. So, yeah. So what's the reason? And, and they what, hired
1: me because I, I do El Nino and you know what? I don't do El Nino for anything anymore.
0: Well, oh, no, okay. But, but I mean, but more broadly, like what do earth scientists do in these companies and you know, what was your actual job? I mean, can we get down to like the brass yeah, tacks yeah. of what, you know, what you actually did?
1: So insurance and reinsurance companies use tools called catastrophe models. And these are in some ways very simplistic models in comparison to like a climate model, but in some ways are actually really complex models in comparison to a climate model. And what they're designed to do is to take information about historical disasters and produce a statistical distribution that is a realistic representation of what could happen for tens or hundreds of thousands of years of disasters. So they're informed by history. They do have some aspects of them that have physical modeling, and they're designed to capture extreme events. So hurricanes and wildfires and earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and extratropical storms, really just like a little bit of a lot of different kinds of disasters. The ones that the insurance industry cares about, which notably is not every kind of disaster. It's worth keeping in mind that this is very focused on areas with a lot of insurance uptake. So it tends to be focused on like U.S., Europe, Asia Pacific, Australia. So it tends to be more developed in areas with more developed insurance markets.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to that. But I just want to interject sort of one comment of translation, which is that you said tens of thousands of years, but it's not like anybody's predicting far in the future or, or into the distant past. It's just that- it
1: is a- statistical distribution of what could happen using tens of thousands of iterations.
0: Right. So it's like 10,000 versions of what next year could be.
1: Exactly. It's designed to be a snapshot of risk in time. Yeah. And they are focused on being a snapshot of risk of one year of the current year, which is own can of worms. We can talk about
0: that. Right. And you need them because- big natural disasters can cause a lot of loss in one shot unlike you know car insurance where it's a lot of people you know it losing little amounts of money all the time and you have big num- you know lots of data one big event is a really big deal but there aren't enough of those events to like count them and get the risk directly exactly. from history they're, so you you build these models to do a, a risk assessment and predict like how they're much They're
1: designed to sort of capture what's happening in the tail so they don't really care about I mean, they do care about, but like hurricanes that happen every year, or every other year, they're designed to capture your one in 50, your one in 100, your one in 250-year event. Right. And so they really, they they sort of came into being with, you know, a couple, really just a couple of companies that it, really, there still are only a handful of companies that do this. But they came, started coming together in the late 80s. And it really was Hurricane Andrew yeah. in 92 that was the impetus that pushed cat models out into the entire industry because right. that hurricane was so much larger than any historical loss that had happened for US hurricanes like you know if you go and and adjust for you know exposure growth or however you want to adjust it for it's you know 5 and 10 times larger than anything that had happened in you know 40 years of historical record right so that's not something that's that works really well if you're just sort of like Drawing a curve through your historical loss distribution, which is how it had been done before. Right, right. So, when you're dealing with disasters that are that big, turns out you have to understand a little bit of science. Yeah. So, that's why they hire scientists. Traditionally, very focused on meteorologists and seismologists, because two biggest perils that they worry about are hurricane and earthquake. But in recent years, that's really expanded into a lot of different areas of earth science. As someone who came in, before that really happens, turns out I kind of had to sell what I was doing a little bit.
0: So these catastrophe models are, you said there's a couple companies. Basically, it's like they're made by a cottage industry of a small number of private companies that started up, I guess they kind of all grew out of academia. They all started about
1: the same time. And they
0: grew out of academia in one way or another. I mean, there's a PhD they scientists, did. but so they produce these models, but you weren't working for those companies, you're working for a reinsurance company that uses that information. So you're the, you're the like staff scientist who does what?
1: So essentially I evaluate those models and compare it with our own book of business. So, you know, they're designed to be sort of a industry average representation of risk. They get updated, you know, every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So if there's new science that emerges that says, Hey, you know, this risk is changing. I would think Mm. about how to adjust those models to account for it. If we were writing specialized types of business that would be more or less susceptible to that risk, we might make adjustments to those models. Mm. If we had parts of the business that wanted to ask questions about it and say, hey, you know, I don't understand why this works this way. You know, should we be thinking about how this particular risk is changing? Then I would go and investigate that, look into the scientific literature, examine the documentation for the models as they existed, work back and forth with those modeling teams to come up with adjustments that made us happy with how these models were representing our risk in the business. So basically my job was to take those models apart and put them back together again. Mm. In places where we didn't have models, actually, especially in reinsurance, because we did a lot more, right? At the time I did a lot more sort of international modeling. So outside of areas where there's much of a solution from a cat modeling perspective. turns out my paleoclimate expertise was really handy there because we did a lot of use of proxies. Mm. So you're like, okay, well, somebody's asking me about, you know, earthquake risk in South Africa. Mm. Well, I don't have a model for earthquake risk in South Africa, but if I go and look at some seismic hazard maps, I say, actually, you know, I think it actually looks sort of similar to South Carolina. It's not gonna be the same, but it can get you to like 80% of the answer if Mm. you can approximate what the impact would be in a different area. So you would use proxies, in places where you did know something about the risk to say something about where you didn't know anything about that risk.
0: So, in, you know, as a, whereas in in academia, you're sort of doing long-term research projects and writing papers about them, you're kind of an internal point of contact through which anything science relates related kind of passes.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And it turns out that the size of the team is really strongly, I, I suppose that's negatively correlated with the amount of time that you spend on projects. No, it's positively correlated with the amount of time you spend on projects. So the vendor model companies, these, like you say, this cottage industry of model builders has big teams of PhDs on staff. Mm. They're probably closest to like an academic type of environment. Mm. You are charged with building one model. You might build it over the course of a year or a couple of years, depending on the complexity of what you're trying to do. You specialize in that one particular area maybe you're a wind vulnerability specialist or you're an engineer who understands exactly how wind tears apart building so you're much more narrowly focused and you have these longer term projects that you try to deliver i started out on essentially the smallest possible team or almost the smallest possible team which meant that i had a ton of quick hits where you know I get a question and they'd be like, okay, well, can you come up with what this risk is going to be? By the way, this account is being written tomorrow or in two days. So what can you tell me in a day or two about what this risk is? So I said that I like arm wavy bullshit, right? So it's a way of really quickly getting to 80% of the answer that at least would get you like order of magnitude of what you're dealing with very quickly. And then you move on to the next thing. It's a way of really quickly learning a lot about a ton of different areas all at once because for me that was really fun it's a lot of like creative problem solving you're like i don't have any data i got this totally off the wall question how can i tackle this using the resources that i have available to me Mm -hmm. in a really short amount of time so to me that was really fun it was refreshing to be able to do something that it's like it's on my desk and off my desk in three days
0: And what about learning about the business? I mean, was that, did that come easily? Was it challenging? How much did you have to do it? I mean,
1: so one of the real benefits was the fact that I sat next to my boss who had been in the industry for decades at that point. He he knew everything about the business top to bottom, you know, so I would just pepper him with stupid questions all day long.
0: Hmm. You know, so you said around the time you started was when I started talking to people in the industry and that's true. And, you know, the first bunch of conversations that I had with people were very eye-opening for me because, as you say, we don't really know it exists. Most people don't know it exists. Not just reinsurance, but the science cat modeling. part of it.
1: Big part, parts of the insurance industry don't know that cat modeling. Right, and, 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 but it's not just
0: scientists. There's a lot of scientists specifically of my exact background, right? So it's my colleagues, my, you know, our former students, all these people. So you meet these people and like, you have lunch with them or whatever, and you say, okay, so what do you do? And they tell you, and you're like, well, really? That sounds like science. And how many people do you have? It's like, oh, I have 10 people, you know, do it.
1: It's like, where have you been? You know, they don't. With, you know, I think is a problem that insurance needs to be grappling with more. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been to insurance industry, you know, meetings or webinars or whatever, where they're like, oh, we have a crisis in hiring. We can't get new people to come in." You know, the whole industry is like on the verge of retirement. What are we going to do? Everybody just wants to go work for Google. Like, we can't hire anyone. And I don't think they realize that if you sell it as, okay, well, you know, go sell insurance. Like, that's, you got to work a little harder at selling what we do. Because, you know, there was this really interesting study that came out recently arguing that the reason why people want to get into geosciences is not to be outside, you know, I mean, I like being outside. Lots of geologists get into it. I mean, half my old department just wanted to find places to go rock climbing, I feel like. Yeah. But a real reason why people want to get into geosciences now is Mm. because they see it as a way to contribute to society. Mm. And to me, I'm like, you know, every single decision that's being made by an insurance company right now, is a decision about how we're going to live with climate change. It is either subsidizing people to live in risky areas or it's helping them understand that they're in risky areas and helping them mitigate that risk. We could either make those decisions with smart people in the room who are thinking about climate change, who are like, Hey, here are the issues that we need to be talking about. This is what's happening now. This is what's coming down the pipe or those people cannot be in the room. So shit, I'd rather have some smart people in the room who can tell us about the science, instead of just winging it. We should not be winging it on climate adaptation.
0: Well, okay, so let's, all right. Well, anyway, so, so
1: box over. <laughs> no, no,
0: no, I, I don't want you to get off of it. I, I wanna keep on this thread. So, But maybe we should talk about the evolution in the time that you've been in the business, which I guess is coming up on a decade now. So these mo- the cat- catastrophe modeling and the overall use of you know earth science in the insurance industry goes back, you know, in a big way to Hurricane Andrew, which was 92. 92. And and it goes before that. I mean, it it started before that, but that's when it got really big. So there's been this stuff, you know, there's been earth scientists in the industries for, for, you know, quite a few decades, but that when you got into the industry in 2012, they weren't really thinking very seriously about climate change, which is also my experience. And I think everyone's experience. Sure. So like, what is your, I, I want to hear your inside view of how that has like, when and how that changed and what that has looked like.
1: To me, it changed really dramatically starting about two years ago.
0: Yeah, that's about right.
1: You know, it, there was a lengthy period of time where, you know from a disaster standpoint what drives trends in the industry is what happens with us hurricanes sandy happens ike happens but right after the 0405 seasons we had a lot of years of not a lot going on from a us hurricane standpoint mm. the big damaging storms were very water based which from the insurance industry standpoint you know most of that's going to national flood insurance program it's going into the public sector so we don't deal with it all that much. So we had Ike, we had Sandy, and then we just didn't have a lot of really destructive storms. So, you know, he wrote a paper about it saying, hey, by the way, it's been a long time since we've had destructive storms. It's kind of weird. So that meant that because we hadn't had very climate-driven disasters for a while, it was just not the top of the list. You know, I could I could always talk about things like sea level rise, Because it was like, well, you know, sea level rise is something that we need to incorporate into our Mm. view of risk, but it's okay. Catastrophe model is actually included already. Mm. We're writing business one year at a time. Our contracts are one year at a time. Sure, climate change is going to happen, but we'll just kind of price it in as we go. It has long been the attitude. So really starting about two years ago, you know, I'm not sure exactly what changed it. You know, There was a little bit more pressure from the regulatory side, but I don't think that was all of it. I think it was just that starting in 2017, we started getting more of these like big climate inflected disasters again. You know, we had mm. a couple of really active hurricane years that yeah. either, you know, produced a lot of damage in the US, which tends to be, like I said, what drives the industry, or that were near enough misses. Mm. You know, like Hurricane Dorian is a great example
2: yeah.
1: where. You know, I can't tell you the amount of frantic emails that I got when that thing was stalled over the Bahamas, but pointing at Florida. Yeah. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe there's some more climate stuff that's happening here beyond just it's getting hot. Because they're like, we're we're writing property. Temperature doesn't really move the needle all that much for us. You know, maybe we're getting some more extreme rainfall, but we don't write a lot of floods. So that's probably not going to move the needle for us that much when you start putting climate impacts in terms of hurricanes and we start seeing a lot of big hurricanes, that's when the industry kind of sits up and starts to take notice. And, you know, for a long time, and I just, it always drove me crazy. The focus has always really been on, okay, hurricane frequency. Are there going to be more hurricanes or are there going to be fewer hurricanes? And Mm. can we tie to climate change? Mm. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, but, like, that's one of the hardest problems to get at from the hurricane side. And, frankly, there's a lot more low-hanging fruit that we should be talking about. Right. You know, we talk about sea level rise and storm surge. We talk about what's happening to intensities of the strongest storms. We can talk about hurricane rainfall. We can talk about stalling. We can talk about polar migration. Like, there's all this rich body of literature that's happening right now. A lot Mm -hmm. of it happening at Columbia. And the industry just had no like concept that this was going on. Right. So that's when that idea of sort of breaking apart disasters into pieces and saying, okay, this part might have more climate things going on. This one probably doesn't that much. Like that's when that idea, I think started coming more into the industry Yeah, and allowed them to kind of grapple with it a little bit better.
0: Can I try out a theory? I mean, cause you know, I, I'm sure it's true that a few bad hurricane years like was part of it, but you know, in 04 and 05 were really bad hurricane years, and, and
1: climate change got trendy for a while. And
0: after it 04, it did. It did get trendy, and I think people in the industry paid attention to it, but not quite enough to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. So my surmise has been that what really changed in the intervening time was partly the science itself getting a little stronger. Like attribution science happening, mm-hmm. uh-huh. getting in the media, but also the politics of it. Like the youth climate movement happened suddenly. You know, it's a social media era. I think shareholders, you know, the media is paying more attention to it. There may be some shareholder pressure. The reg, you know, regu- talk of regulation starts happening. I mean, Bloomberg did the, um, you know, climate-related financial disclosure. They're just like I had the sense that it's not just the hurricanes, although that surely was, you know, helped, but also yeah. just the societal change. And somebody, I felt like somebody must've been telling the companies at a top level, like, what are you guys doing, you know, about this? And the answer not being good enough to satisfy whoever was asking that. And, and yeah,
1: I think interestingly, in a lot of ways, the, the science has gotten, or has felt less political, like it felt less like a political statement to say, Climate change is a thing we have to worry about.
0: But that's because some political battle got won in some part of society. That's what I mean.
1: Like, so when I started in the industry, if we were running, you know, an industry conference or workshop or something, it was actually, people were uncomfortable if you got up and said climate change, because it felt like you were taking a political stand. Because of course, like, this is the time period when like all the... You know, the email crap was going on. they just, it just was a very like,
2: yeah. they just
1: were like, we just don't want to get involved. Yeah. We don't want to stick our head up here into this political mess. Right. When really it's not political, right? From, right. from a sheerly like self-interested standpoint, it's, you're going to make less money if you're paying out. A ton on climate-related disasters, you're not accounting for it, right? Like it's a straight up bottom line impact, right? Um, And I think that mentality of you just need to account for this stuff because it's going to be part of what we do every day from now until forever. That attitude has really changed in the last couple of years. Once it becomes acceptable that a couple of companies start talking about it, right? becomes more acceptable for more of them to talk about it. And that really started with like the European reinsurers were kind of yeah. the first movers on this.
2: Yeah, that's It right. has been
1: much slower to come to the States. Even now in the States, the larger U S insurers are not exactly at the front of the line, knocking down the door on climate risk, working on that, right. but it's getting there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say like the, the positive reinforcement is that, you know, when, when insurance companies and other parts of the financial industry or other private sector companies start to take this problem seriously, it, it, I think it means a lot in the political arena because, because it is dollars and cents, you know, you guys aren't,
1: we are piece. a small C conservative industry. Nobody right. thinks that we're out here with a political agenda. Cause frankly, we aren't right. It's just, we assess risk. This is the risk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it's funny because, you know, a lot of the initial work on like climate disclosures and climate pressure was very focused on investments and very focused on emissions, right? That's always been, you know, you know, going after coal and oil and gas and your investment book and yada, yada, whatever, which, you know, it affects insurance a little bit, but like, you know, it's not, it's not what we do for business, right? Right, right. What we do for business is assess physical hazards and that's where like from a climate science standpoint has not traditionally been the biggest focus you know climate models are really good at long periods of time sort of broad spatial patterns and changes in average conditions they can tell you something about extremes you know we know things like extreme precipitation is going to get more extreme that's a reasonably well-behaved thing Mm. but when we're dealing with hurricanes which a traditional climate model can barely resolve you know obviously downscale models can do that but it's a it's a very specialized problem within the climate modeling sphere of influence yeah wildfires i mean really there are a handful of like really good wildfire specialists and it's not been a traditional area of focus for most of climate science right and operating at this this time scale where you're stuck dealing with a bunch of natural variability that's mixed in with everything yeah Means that it's not, we're not going to the place where that signal to noise ratio is the largest. Right, right, right. Climate scientists have been very defensive for a lot of years, because they've had to be, to say, like, this is what we can absolutely 10,000% prove is 100%, a million ways <laughs> this is happening. Don't yell at us, please. Right. And for the stuff that we deal with, we just can't operate with that level of confidence. We're just right. not going to have that luxury. Right. So, you know, we have to, we have to deal with the messy present. We have to deal with, okay, well, you know, some things about hurricanes are changing. Some things aren't, we can't, we can do some attribution. We can't do some attribution on other stuff. Everybody's going to be arguing about it in the literature. And we still have to make decisions in that environment. Yeah. Like that's a hard thing to have to do. An interesting thing to have to do. Yeah. But well, at the bleeding edge of climate science.
0: But, you know, y- in your industry, you're used to that, right? I mean, you have to come to conclusions about the probabilities of terrorist attacks and, you know, stuff like that, you know? So, I mean, I think this is something that's hard for some climate scientists to understand and that gets some of the communication with the public mixed up. And it's not just about reinsurance, you know, it's about a lot of decisions we have to make in life are about risk and you have to do something. And we've been trained to not say anything until we can sort of prove the case.
1: Until you're sure nobody's Con- going to yell at you.
0: Right. Conclusively. But but you can't wait till then. And, and just because you don't know doesn't mean nothing's, you know, that there's no problem. So yeah, I think that's been a difficult issue. So, okay. So yeah, there's a few things I want to ask you about now. So what, I was going to ask two questions. One is to talk about how this is changing in the rest of the private sector. So now there's a whole new wave of companies that are doing sort of a similar kind of science, but not exactly the same. That's not just about reinsurance, but about the rest of the private sector now having to think about climate risk, whether they're doing it because they think they're going to be regulated or because their shareholders want them to, or because they really think they need to know their risk. So that's one thing that's grown the sphere of, Activity and people that you and I both interact with who are doing this kind of work. That's one question. You but then
1: like now, yeah, worms. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And
0: I know you have a lot to say about it. But I guess while we're there, so the related question that got me to that was as a larger number of us in the private sector and in academia are working on the applied problem of quantifying climate risk, like saying, you have a bunch of buildings or cities or people that are live in some place, and they have some risk of being hit by X, Y, or Z types of harmful events from the climate, and those risks may be changing. And we're trying to put numbers on that with whatever difficulty you know, comes with that. How do we think about what the societal value of that is? I mean, it's easy to say if somebody needs it for their business, they're going to make money. And if you just believe capitalism is the highest good, then maybe that's enough. But for some of us, we want to think about it at a little higher plane than that. You know, we, in other words, it's easy to say if you can get somebody to reduce emissions, that hasn't, you know, that's a benefit to future generations. And if you can get somebody out of harm's way, that does too. And so maybe some, you know, reinsurance has a role to play there. But I'm just curious how you, to give a counterexample, right? I could imagine that you know some of our stuff may be used by you know international development finance. So somebody's trying to, you know, the World Bank or somebody is trying to decide how to allocate funds and or even the reinsurance industry could decide based on climate risk that some place is uninsurable because the risk is too high. You can imagine outcomes where people have to leave their homes because they can not insure them or because, you know, there's some. In other words, you can think of bad outcomes from what we do as well as good outcomes. Sure. And I'm just curious how you think about all this, you know, from a sort of ethics point of view
1: couple of things. I'm a big believer in using the tools that are at hand. You know, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good kind of person. Mm. So, you know, a good example here is sort of development decisions that have been made along the coast over the course of decades. All this stuff happens ultra at the local level. You know, there are places in Staten Island that are going back and redeveloping areas that were totally wiped out in Hurricane Sandy, for example. Yeah if we wait until some perfect policy solution comes down from on high, we will be waiting forever. So one of the tools that we have to hand is an entire industry that is based around assessing risk. That being said, from an insurance standpoint, climate is kind of a, it's a hard problem because it's not really, it doesn't really line up with the way that insurance traditionally thinks about risk. Because insurance is designed around individuals Mm. and trying to optimize or minimize or mitigate the risk on an individual basis. Mm. So like, you know, if you want to take like a health insurance example, if you're going and smoking a pack a day, you're a worse risk than somebody who, you know, I don't know, does a lot of yoga or whatever. So climate isn't like that. It operates at a much larger spatial scale. It operates in a way where it's, you know, it's not people's fault, and it's not fair. And it's not going to be fair. So, you know, an example that I like to give here is, you know, in, in the flood insurance space. If we were to use insurance as the way to optimize how we respond to flood risk, you know, you might have an insurance policy that says, okay, well, it your your policy premiums have gone up So it actually is going to be a worthwhile investment to raise your home up on stilts. Mm. And that's going to lower your premiums and it's going to be cost effective for you. It's going to minimize your risk and you're going to make it up in time because you have lowered insurance premiums. This is, I'm just throwing this out here as a hypothetical. The problem is your flood risk isn't individual. Maybe that entire community is at risk
2: Mm.
1: of flooding. Mm. You could probably manage that risk a lot more effectively if you your stormwater infrastructure maybe you go and build a levee maybe you go restore a coastal marsh whatever you think about risk at a community scale rather than an individual scale
2: Mm.
1: it's probably cheaper it's probably more effective insurance doesn't have any way to get groups of people to hang together so in one sense i think there's a real opportunity for innovation there that we need to think creatively and outside the box to say, okay, what can insurance do well and where should this happen in other areas? Can we do public-private partnerships? Can we work together with academics to think through,
2: Mm.
1: like where are we not the solution to the problem? Because you know, at the end of the day, the insurance industry isn't gonna solve climate change. It's a source of funding that can help people deal with disasters and we expect to see more disasters of a lot of different kinds. But if all we have for climate adaptation is insurance swooping in afterwards and handing out a check, we are going to have be high on your misery index. All
2: right.
1: So to me, I want insurance to be thinking about this in the right way, to not be incentivizing people to put themselves in more danger. Right. Like, let's not make it worse. Let's try and put together some smart like policy things that are happening on, mm. on the private sector side, on the public sector side. So I think in that sense, the insurance industry can be a really good advocate for that. Yeah. You know, we can be a, a powerful voice that says, Hey, this risk is changing. You know, the only dog we have in this fight is we don't want to see more disasters. And we have a mechanism to communicate with individuals all the time today. So how can we use that? Yes, I am not working for a nonprofit. There are people who do this kind of work in the nonprofit space who I think are awesome. Um, yeah. I don't know if you work with like the Climate Central folks at all. Like they're trying to think through how to do this communication stuff. There are a lot yeah. of ways to think about risk in the private sector, in the public sector, in academia, in nonprofits. Yeah, yeah. This is just where I happen to land, and I think it's part of the answer. And I know it's not all the answer.
0: Yeah. No, I. I mean, I. You know what? Am I asking you? My goal is not. To, I'm not trying to challenge you. I mean, I struggle with this myself I, I, I'm thinking about it should struggle
1: with this you should yeah. struggle with like how do you use the time that you have in your life exactly you know I feel like this is my little bit that I can do yeah because I've found this little bit and I can do it here yeah but other people are going to have a different spot to do their little bit
0: yeah I mean I so I, I think of it not from the point of view of just what can insurance do but what can the science of climate risk assessment do and a couple other things that have Occurred to me are, I mean, one is just sort of indirectly, as we've said, the more the private sector worries about global warming in almost any pragmatic way, I think the more that's a good thing because it's happening and, you know, we're not doing enough about it. And part of that is just that people aren't concerned enough. So, and don't kind of recognize the magnitude of what's happening. So, the more that that happens, in the capitalist economy, which is what you know runs the world, you know, the more that's better than it not happening. And the other is, you know, some of what we're involved in is trying to do a little bit more of this in a publicly accessible way. And in discussions around that, I mean, even though it's still of interest to the reinsurance industry, but also there's a need for money in the poorest countries to support adaptation for the people who are going to be most affected by it and to get money from out of the capitalist system, which includes, you know, international NGOs, they have to have some amount of science to say what the risk is, or nobody will give them the money. So like okay. if we can make that science exist, then then it opens up some possibilities for, you know, I mean, I've seen this, I'm involved in some discussions now with, with a group that's trying to come up with um, a way for cities in the least developed countries to get insurance products that have a like 10 year or longer time frame to insure mm-hmm. against climate change. Because some of these places are concerned that by the time things get worse, they won't get able to be insured at all. They want to lock something in. And the people who could provide that insurance are saying, well, we can't do it because we don't have good enough modeling of what the climate risk is in these places. So like, yeah,
1: because traditionally, like these might be areas that don't have a lot of insurance uptake to begin with. So that's not the area where cat models have been focused on being built and developed and refined. So it's like, how do you break out of that cycle? How do you say, okay, well the models aren't good enough so we can't develop the market, but you can't develop the market because the models aren't good enough. Right. right. How do you get out of that uncomfortable situation? I think
0: like, it's both things. I think it's the being in a, in a market that the industry hasn't been in before, but it's also the climate change factor. And happened. then you
1: add climate change on top of it.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So, so while we're here, now I want to get you to talk about the change in this, in the private sector, you know, the broadening of this kind of work outside reinsurance and the boom in, what do we call it? Climate risk analytics or climate
1: data services companies, however we want to describe it. So to me, a lot of this is coming from regulatory pressure that companies feel like they're, going to have to respond to regulators and say we're thinking about climate change because they realize that this is a problem that every company is going to have to respond to and they need to respond to it with some data but interestingly those regulatory requests often come out of areas that don't have a lot of interaction with the climate science community so they're very focused on what impacts are to businesses. And so they say, okay, well, insurance industry, you guys have to worry about hurricanes a lot. Tell me about how your hurricane risk is gonna change 50 years in the future. The problem, of course, is that there are some things that you can say about how hurricane risk will change 50 years in the future, and there are some things that are not. But much like what has happened in the private weather enterprise, because there are publicly available climate models that will produce data out to that time frame. You can get companies that will just go and scrape out with their whatever their secret sauce is, different slices of time from here until forever and package it up in a nice little package and sell it to people. And some actors that are doing this are trying very hard to do this in a scientifically responsible way. And other people have a lot of venture capital money and see that there is a need. And so they will put out a number and that number is probably not going to mean anything. I mean, I feel like half of my job is just taking what's happening in the scientific community and putting in front of people from the business side, taking what's happening in the business community and putting in front of what's happening in the scientific side.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I, I was meaning to ask, I mean, you are we're sort of talking about two things at the same time. One is yeah. the new thing that is happening. And the other thing is whether it's being done well or not. And so the new thing that is happening, I mean, you talked about regulatory requests, but actually there isn't a lot of actual regulation in the US yet, right? I mean, where are these regulatory requests?
1: Are you sure? <laughs> I'm not sure.
0: That's my, I mean, what are the regulations? It's
1: very much changed again in the last year or two. But it's coming from national regulators. It's coming from state regulators. We're getting questions from the Treasury. We we just had a statement released by FSOC yesterday. So there's just this real focus on climate as an economy scale risk that has really sort of burst into consciousness recently. Uh, Most of this regulatory environment started in the EU or in the UK, and it has been... In the U.S., it's more in the sort of information gathering phase.
0: Right. That's what I meant. It's not like there's laws that have been passed or anything. That's true.
1: But there are enough questions that it's getting folks antsy
0: right. about that. So people feel they have to do something. They need some data from somewhere. There's a company springing up to provide it. And There are
1: consultants springing up to provide it.
0: Right. And so, I mean, so, yeah, we both understand how it's possible to do this badly because a lot of climate information of the sort that's desired is inevitably comes with very large uncertainties and to be responsible. Those uncertainties
1: are are difficult to communicate when your end user says, I need a number that I can put into my regulatory response.
0: Right. What's the right way to do it? In other words, I mean, my short answer would be 95% 95% of the job should be talking about uncertainty in very sort of careful and and maybe situation specific ways. You know, what do you think if I start a climate analytics, you know, company and I want to sell my services to the private sector, this is a hypothetical, I'm not actually doing this. What should I do? Like what's the right way to do it?
1: So I think the way or the way that that I've been thinking about how to tackle this, I don't know if this is the right way, but this is the way that I've been doing it is to say there are some things that we know well at a time frame that is relevant to a business. So for the insurance industry, this tends to be on like a less than a decade kind of timescale. There's something there that we know really well, and there's some things that we don't know particularly well that they have a, a very wide range of uncertainty. And to me, it's identifying sort of what those different slices are. You know, to go back to our hurricane example, sea level rise in the next 10 years, pretty well behaved. What's going to happen by 2100? Bigger error bars, but 10 years from now, we we'll probably have pretty well decided what our sea level trajectory is going to be. Mm. So that we can explicitly incorporate into our modeling going forward. So if we have models of storm surge, you can add on that future looking sea level rise and say, right. this is how storm surge is going to be different in the future. That is predictive. Right. But for things like hurricane frequency, it's a little bit of a different problem. You know, we know there's a lot of uncertainty, that there's a lot of natural variability and maybe some climate variability that's going on top of it. We can't exclude climate change. So we want to try and see how big of an impact that it could have. So the way that that we've been tackling this is to say, okay, let's not say this is the amount of hurricane frequency change that we're going to see by 2050. Is one, that's a timescale that's not relevant to the business. Two, the science isn't really there. And three, even if you did come up with it, like what's a business going to do with that if it operates at very short timescales and you're telling them about what's going to happen 30 years in the future? So instead, what we've been doing is essentially running reverse stress tests. So yeah, instead of yeah. saying, here's what I think is going to happen, we say, how much would climate have to change? Mm in order for it to affect our risk appetite. Mm-mm. So we use metrics that are related to our risk tolerance. So, you know, metrics that capture sort of the tail of our probability distribution, as well as expected losses that are related to profitability. And we say, okay, let's iterate through the range of things that are in the realm of possible. And it's a big range, right? The mm-hmm. hurricane frequency has a big range. We're going to focus on the stuff that actually moves losses. So we tend to focus on the most extreme events. Science is a little bit better there. It's most of our loss potential. So that's where we are focusing our attention. And we say, what would happen if we put a stupid number in here? Mm. What if we double our frequency? Mm. Does that change our risk appetite? And essentially you iterate through from mm. no change mm. to a big change. Right. And you say, at what point am I worried? Yeah. If you're close to that point, Then you start thinking about, okay, well, you know, we go back and go back to my original job as a cat modeler. You interrogate the model that you work with today. Because remember, catastrophe models are built off of historical probabilities. They have some components that are designed to be very current or very forward looking or somewhat forward looking. But think about what kinds of uncertainties are you incorporating using the historical record and say, how close am I to that line? Maybe in some other areas, depending on what your particular mix of business looks like, you could increase the risk a ton and it's not really gonna matter that much for your risk appetite. Mm. So that says actually you got a lot of room to run. Climate change isn't your number one concern in that area for that peril. Mm. It's a way of turning the problem around on its head Mm. Mm. to translate it to how the business actually makes decisions, which is honestly is a hard thing to do. Like it's gonna be different for every industry. I can give you examples for how it plays out in insurance financial sector is going to have a different answer. A retailer is going to have a different answer. But that's why you need this workforce of people who yeah. understand the climate, understand this complex literature, Yeah, can say, this is the thing that's most important for the business that I do. Right, I can speak both languages right. and I can help them talk to each other.
0: Right. It's like a lot of usable science is translation.
1: It yeah. is. I married a translator. So really? It
0: works out okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so, but I mean, so I'm realizing. I know you have to go soon, so I, I realized that we should say what your job is now, because you've, you know, it's been, you've changed jobs maybe a couple times and couple moved time. moved up in the world quite a lot. So, what are you actually? You were saying we do this and we do that. So, what is your actual job now and where? Yeah. And so what?
1: now I'm at I'm at Liberty Mutual. Yeah. So sorry for the commercials. Ugh. Now they follow me everywhere. Now the cookies are like, oh, you're interested in Liberty Mutual. It's like, no, I work there. Stop (laughs) giving me emus. (laughs) I'm a little salty about this. So I I head up a research and development team. So, you know, like I started out in the industry on an R&D team. Now I head a team. And I sit within an enterprise risk management group. So thinking about big, ugly risks that can impact the entire business. And take apart cat models and put them back together again. But I also work really closely, for example, with our—we have an office of sustainability that thinks more about transition risk and climate strategy and how do we incorporate this massively changing world of climate risk into our business. And so that's actually an area that I spend a lot of time in now as well. So I still do some cat modeling, but I also do a lot more like strategy kinds of things. And I talk a lot. Seriously, I do a lot of talks about climate change, catastrophes, and how we can incorporate it into the business because I want every single slice of our business to be educated and be able to speak coherently about how climate can affect their business.
0: And so I want to hear your thoughts because I know you have them, you know and we've sort of been talking about it a little bit, but a little more in our last minutes on what the relationships are between the different parts of the world, private sector, academia, government, reinsurance, you know, all, all these different things. And, you know, how we work together or don't now, how should we? And I guess as part of that, the role of the the relative roles of you know private intellectual property versus you know what what science should be out in the open because that's how we do things in academia and how we think science progresses versus what shouldn't or can't be because everybody has to make money. And if everybody knows what they know, then they won't be able to, you know, people have to defend the, like, how do you think about all these problems? These and are
1: how- big questions for the last couple of minutes. Well, I,
0: I should have gotten to them earlier, but, you
1: know. <laughs> so a couple things. First of all, if my entire job could just be to get smart people in one area, to talk to smart people in another area, like, I feel like that would be a good job. Because I feel like half of what I do is just say, Hey, person who's thinking about commercial risks, you should talk to this data analytics company because they have things that could be useful for you. And data analytics company, maybe you should talk to these academics because they can think about how to, you know, advance your science. Mm. And, you know, climate scientists, maybe you should talk to these economists over here because they're living with the policy implications of everything that you're coming up with. And you guys don't even like know each other hardly. So that would be a good job. I
0: think. Well, it's about half your job now, it sounds like. It's
1: getting to be a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I like arm-wavy bullshit. That's my favorite thing to do. So what you're alluding to is that some of the most important tools for how we examine and understand risk cost millions of dollars to license, and they live in insurance companies, and they don't live in the public. And I actually really grapple with this problem because, you know, the scientist in me says the more information that you give people, the better decisions that they can make. Right. And I think that's true if that's where you start. But like I'm going to go back to the flood insurance market again, because I think this is one of the areas that is just it just shows like all the ways that things can get weird. So now, because there are these climate data analytics companies, there are now some like real estate companies, several of them, that have added on tools that do climate data analytics. Some of them are closer to CAT models. Some of them are not very close to CAT models. And they say, this property is at some risk of flooding now and is at significant risk of flooding in the future. Now, if you're the homeowner, who owns that property now? That data is going to affect your ability to sell that home. Right. You know, these are, these are real estate companies. You're you're on there because you want to sell your home. Yeah. So there are real implications to the fact that this data has not been public before mm. and is coming to be public now. Yeah. Now I don't think the right answer is to just not share that data because people deserve to know what their risk is now and what their risk is in the future. There are two complicating factors for that is that we wanna make sure that we do this in a way that does not reinforce historical inequities. So for example, again, speaking about flood risk, historically disadvantaged communities are already at higher risk of flood hazard. Property values in those areas have already been reduced because of decades of redlining. You don't have a property tax base that can help you invest in infrastructure to get out of that. And Mm. now you're adding on these data tools that say, hey, by the way, you're massively at risk of flooding and you're going to hit those property values more. I don't think the answer is to just not share data, but the Mm. answer is to think creatively about how we can break that cycle by investing in that sort of defensive infrastructure, stormwater upgrades, all the things that we're going to need to do to live with climate change. Right. The other complication is that there are companies out there that are putting out really great data and analytics products. And there are people out there with no background and no expertise who are putting out nonsense products that are now attached to real estate sites that are impacting property values based on no science. And so you run this because it's just this wild west of climate data analytics companies out there. You know, some are putting out good stuff. Some are putting out nonsense. You're affecting people's real lives if you put out junky data. Right. So, you know, I know that like the public sector is talking about this a lot. I know this is an area that like NOAA is concerned about. Like, how do you foster this innovation? Like there's this massive amount of innovation that's been happening while also, making sure that you protect people from the bad effects of nonsense data. And I don't think there's going to be a real clean answer to that for a while. Because the problem is, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, you make a weather forecast, that weather forecast is bad, you're going to find out tomorrow, right. make a climate forecast for 2050. And that climate forecast is bad. Right. It's not really a forecast. But you know, what I mean, it, yeah. it's going to take a long time for it to play out. So there's not a, a really quick way to sort out who's doing a good job and who's putting out nonsense. And you're asking individuals with no training, no background to sift the signal from the noise. So I don't have a good answer.
0: Well, I mean, so you can imagine, I mean, for the problem you were just talking about, I mean, you can imagine some kind of regula- regulation where there'd be some group of people that looks at the science And you can't say whether a prediction of, for 20 years from now is right or not, but you could say whether the science that went into it is reasonable and high quality. There's
1: some discussion that there should be some sort of public open source right. climate modeling that's focused on extremes. Yeah, yeah. It kind of smells like a cat model. Yeah. Should that be a regulated data product? That conversation is happening now and the reason is because of this kind of stuff that's going on.
0: Right, right. So I was so there's the like quality problem and the regulation issue. I was also just thinking about the tension between, you know, for for companies that are serving the private sector and that are trying to do this, you know, within the capitalist system, you know, if they're developing something good, they sort of need to keep it proprietary to some degree to make money. You can't make something and then give it away, right? It's a
1: very weird transition coming from academia to the private sector. Right. Because you're, as, as an academic, I'm like, I found something cool. I'm going to write a paper and tell literally everybody. Right. And that is not how it works here, and that is weird. Right. Like, so you, I you find that weird.
0: So you need some incentive for the private sector to do its thing, but the, also this some of this information is in the public interest and should be debated publicly, right? If somebody's, if I'm saying, if I'm putting out data that's saying your house is under this much risk, and therefore its price is going to drop, like you I'd should love have
1: to see a cat model interpret comparison project. But I too. mean,
0: well, no, ah. but I'm just saying you should. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say like you ah. as the homeowner should theoretically be able to know how that was done. I mean, not that the lay person would be able to understand it, but like there should be some public scrutiny of it, but that's kind of incompatible with, you know, the the public and private incentives are not always aligned and it's, yeah, it's a tricky thing to think about what should happen, let alone how one would possibly make it happen.
1: Yeah. It's a, you know, it's funny because cat models, you know, there have been more academic CAT models that have tried to tackle the hazard question. But because the private sector CAP models are able to incorporate, you know, the, all of these physical scientists who are tackling various disasters, climate or otherwise, yeah. and then they have all this engineering expertise that says this is how this property is going to be damaged, in what situations, and then they have all of this financial modeling expertise that incorporates, you know, you know, complex incorporations mm-hmm. of uncertainty across big, weird probability distributions, it's very hard for an academic outfit or for a public outfit to get all of that expertise under one roof. Yeah. And they're coming from behind because they're trying to compete against models that have been doing this for three decades. Now, yeah. in some cases, that's meant that they have an advantage, You know, in the flood modeling space in particular, yeah. because the traditional players weren't all that interested in flood. For a long time, it's allowed a flourishing ecosystem of smaller competing flood mm. modelers to come up mm. that have been able to do a lot. Mm. But it means that there's a lot of sort of institutional lock-in to these historical cat models, which do are very good at doing what they do, but are not public. Yeah, well, so, also
0: academia can't serve the needs of the customer. I mean, we can't go, you know, if somebody needs information, you described, you know, tailored to their specific situation, there's only so much we can do that you know, yeah. we're not, that's not how we work. It's all research for us. So it's, yeah.
1: And it's very applied for academia, really. Like right. at the end of the day, this is incredibly applied science. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a role that the private sector can fill here, but you know, there are also our big open source modeling outfits who are trying to put more of this out into the public sphere to varying degrees. Yeah. Oasis being sort of the the, the best known of those.
0: Right. But I mean, you could also imagine that what academia could do is do enough science that's kind of like it, like what the private sector is doing, that it both serves the public needs that are there that aren't being served by the private sector, and also means that our graduates, when they go, if and when they go into the private sector, kind of already have a clue what's going on, you know, and don't need to be totally retrained in the way they yeah. do now.
1: And there are big societal questions that a CAT model would be great at answering and the incentives aren't there to answer them because they're not in the service of single clients.
2: Right. right We're trying exactly. to make
1: decisions about what the cost of climate change is going to be yeah. without the models that are the best at coming up with those physical damages, yeah. right? You know, I, I go and see transition risk models that say that the physical damage or the physical impact of climate change on Florida is that its economy is going to improve because Florida has air conditioners. Not to put too fine a point on it. I feel like climate science needs to be <laughs> at that table.
0: <laughs> well, that's, yeah, maybe common sense. That's
1: science. what's being used to price carbon today is that model. Uh, yeah. Because these people aren't talking to each other. Cat models could bring a lot to that table, but we need to have more people doing that out in the public to make that happen. Okay. So thanks, Adam, for doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, so
1: appreciate that you guys are working on we're that. We're both
0: trying. And we're, we're yeah. both trying. So I know I've kept you too long. So you got to go, right? Got to go. So thank you so much for doing this, Kelly. It's great.
1: Always a
0: pleasure to catch up. If we had another hour, we could do it, but we don't. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you again. Good and luck. And, I, and I'm sure Hopefully we'll.
1: One of these days, uh, we'll all be able to get out of our stupid houses. <laughs>
0: yeah, that'd be nice.
1: That'd be nice.
0: Okay, so I'll see you when that happens. All right. And probably sooner than that on a screen. Okay, bye.
1: Have a good one. Bye-bye.
0: So you heard Kelly say a lot in that interview that she likes arm-waving or bullshitting. She's being self-deprecating when she says that, but what it really means is synthesizing a lot of diverse information to make sense of a complicated problem, even when you don't have all the data or tools that you might like to have in an ideal setting. But that's what we have to do to deal with the real-world problems that climate change presents us with. So Kelly's arm-waving is an expression of much-needed wisdom, and I'm so glad to have been able to talk to her about it here. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.